convention. Actually, it's today. It's the first Sunday in February. Uh, we now have existed at, and been doing weekly worship services for three years uh, as a church. So every Super Bowl Sunday when it rolls around is, is, is special for us for another reason, um, which is that we, we've gathered for another year uh, as a church. And, uh, and as I was thinking about that this week, it's been three years filled with amazing gifts and blessings of God, a lot of unexpected turns and twists, uh, and also hard and difficult things. Uh, all of that. And, and that, as I was actually, uh, had a few moments this week to kind of sit back and, and consider that, that actually has me really encouraged that, that, that we're experiencing all three of those things simultaneously. Because really, that's what we're going to have for life. That, that's like, that's what we have to look forward to for all of our life, as, as many days as God would give us breath in our lungs. It's going to be filled with joys and sorrows. Um, things that make us really grateful, but also things that lead us to lament and mourn. Uh, work that's been done, and we get to look back on and, and celebrate in and rejoice. And also a ton more work that still that still has to be done. And for three years, and being three years in, I think God's been really, really gracious to us as a church body, as a church family. Um, not just gracious to us, not just blessing us in the positive moments, but really in all of it. He's been good and gracious to us to... Um, to not let us get an overinflated sense of ourselves and our ability. Um, he's, he's helped us not uh, make the error of thinking that if we just pray enough or just plan things well enough, we'll avoid all the pitfalls that are out there that you could make as a, as a young church. Uh, he's helped us, actually, he's graciously allowed us to fall in some things so that we've not overestimated ourselves. And that's actually a gift of God, too. Um, so, so I just would be... I just would invite you to rejoice with me and to celebrate all that God's done for as long as you've been here. If you haven't been here for those three years, um, the people that God's brought and allowed us to do life together with, um, the facility and places God's provided for us to meet, the money God's provided with us to serve people here in this church, but also to give a lot of money away in our first three years, all of that. But more than anything, that God in these last three years has over and over again called us back to complete and utter dependence on Himself. And that is just a sweet place to be every single year and every every time we celebrate another year and every day in between. Um, so I just wanted to start this morning by sharing that and just offering a prayer. If I'd ask you to pray with me just to thank God for, for three years of, of worshiping together as a church. So pray with me. God, we are grateful to you for what you've done and what you are doing. You have, you have been gracious to us as a young group of believers who gather, who, who long to see you known, who long to worship you with all of our lives, not just for this hour or so on a Sunday morning. Would you continue to pour out your grace to us and sustain us? Would you continue to grow us individually in our own hearts? Would you transform us, not just once but always? And would you use us to do that kind of work here in this region? We got to hear the words of encouragement from 2 Corinthians 5 about how you use those whom you've reconciled to be reconcilers of others. And we pray that you would make us more and more the reconciled reconcilers to our neighbors, to our workplaces, to this region uh, and beyond. Uh, we look to you for that. We're grateful to you for how you've already done that and are doing that. Do that more. Uh, and we pray that in your name. If you have Bibles, uh, we're in John chapter 7 today. John chapter 7, it's page 893. It's one of those black hardcover Bibles under your chair. 
Uh, in college, some of you know this already about me, I was a business major, didn't set out to be uh, a pastor from, from the early days of, of pursuing a, a degree. So uh, I still enjoy learning from uh, the business world, the business community, and reading various business articles and publications from time to time. And this past week, I read an article in the Harvard Business Review that was all about polarizing brands. So companies or products that are polarizing, they quickly divide people into camps of people who love them and who hate them. Uh, Now there are some companies and brands that aren't polarizing at all. So for example, just down the street from here is is a restaurant called Five Guys Burgers and Fries. Okay, I would say Five Guys Burgers and Fries is not a polarizing brand. You might like it, you might not care for it, but I haven't heard of any wars emerging between like the haters and the lovers of Five Guys Burgers and Fries. McDonald's, on the other hand, is also down the street, serves the exact same kind of food, burgers and fries, and yet I would say McDonald's is a polarizing brand. You tend with McDonald's to either love it or you hate it. And, and I bet you, if you think about it, it'll take you about two seconds to come up with in your mind someone you know that hates McDonald's, like loathes it with a passion. And maybe it's even you. Maybe you're throwing up in your mouth a little bit right now if we're talking about it so much. But in the, in the past and in the present, McDonald's has become this lightning rod in our culture for debates about the integrity and the source of our food, for obesity and the obesity problem in America, for minimum wage for fast food employees, on and on. You know, McDonald's is a polarizing brand. So this article then goes on to talk about different strategies that a polarizing brand could pursue. Like if you are polarizing, how do you deal with that if you're a company? And this article mentions three strategies. One, you could placate the haters. You could try to find a way to make the people that hate you happy and not hate you anymore. You could also poke the haters. That's the opposite strategy. Um, You could try to make the haters even more angry at you. And that's actually a strategy because in their getting angry at you and hating you even more, they actually generate some publicity for you. So this article mentioned this example of a European airline called Ryanair. Uh, you may not be familiar with that because I wasn't at all. Uh, it's it's kind of like Southwest Airlines on steroids. It's a value airline known for its extreme cost-cutting measures. And they're known for that. They're polarizing because of that. And so in the midst of taking flack from people about being so cost-cutting that it was becoming like detrimental to customer service, they ran an ad campaign about even more cuts that they were planning. Um, like making a standing-only section on flights. The other one was imposing a fat tax on overweight customers. So if you weigh more, you pay more. That was the, that was the ad. Okay, of course, they weren't planning any of those. They weren't actually going to do that. What they did was, in insinuating that they were going to make these, these cuts, they got the haters even more riled up, and they got more publicity every time they, they rolled one out. So you can placate, you can poke the haters. Lastly, they said, you can amplify the polarizing attribute. So you can keep talking about the specific thing or things that creates the division. And eventually what that does is it takes anybody who's in the middle, who doesn't really care one way or the other, and it kind of forces their hand. They're either going to love you and they'll probably become more and more loyal, or they're going to hate you and they're going to become even more opposed and entrenched in their opposition. So we're continuing in the Gospel of John this morning, and what we see in John chapter 7 
is that when Jesus lived and ministered in Palestine, he quickly became a polarizing figure. We're going to read in just a moment that there was division among the people because of him. And in the midst of that polarization that happened then, in the first century, the same kind of polarization that very much still happens today, Jesus doesn't placate the haters. He doesn't make his message easier to swallow. Nor does he just poke them for the sake of poking them and antagonizing them. Instead, he does the third thing. If we had to compare it to this this article, he does the third thing. And he amplifies the polarizing attributes. He keeps saying the same things over and over again that make him such a source of division. He doesn't back off. He doesn't change his message. He just keeps doubling down on who he is and what he's come to do. So I would encourage you to listen for that in today's text. We're going to read John chapter 7. I'm going to pick it up in verse 25 and then read through 52. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? And comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, may we look to you in your word, and may we see, Jesus, the claims that you make by who you are, and may we consider our own response 
what our past response has been, what it is in the present. Um, and any of us who are still wrestling with major questions that are keeping us from belief, I pray, God, that we would just really see Jesus for who he is uh, in what you've revealed of, of him through John's words this morning. Let me pray that in your name. Amen. So two things, really, that we're going to just look at in this text together this morning. First, what does Jesus say about himself? And then second, how do people respond? What does Jesus say about himself? And then how do people respond? So what does Jesus say about himself? Here's the setting that all of this takes place in. Um, Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a week-long Jewish festival that happened in the early fall, and it had two purposes associated with it. First, uh, it commemorated the time in history when the Israelites wandered through the desert wilderness after they'd been set free from slavery in Egypt. So God sets them free under Moses' leadership. They wander around in the desert for 40 years. They don't have a permanent home, so they would construct tents. And every year, remembering that, at this festival, the Jewish men and women would live in booths, temporary shelters, and recall God's faithfulness to them during that season of their history. Second, it was also an annual time to give thanks to God for the harvest. The end of the fall, or early middle fall, it would be a time to celebrate God's provision in, in the harvest. So Jesus waits for the right moment, comes a little later than his brothers to the Feast of Booths, and then in the middle of the festival, in the middle of the feast, shows up and begins teaching. His teaching generates a lot of reaction, uh, a lot of curiosity among the people who hear it. And ultimately it centers on this one question. Is Jesus the Christ? Is Jesus the Christ? And Christ isn't a last name. Christ is a title. Uh, it means the anointed one. So the Jews believed that God was going to send an anointed one to redeem his people from their bondage. He was going to send an anointed one to impart life and to bring restoration. For us, uh, many of us in the room refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ. Uh, many of us in the room call ourselves Christians, which has the word Christ in it. It means we are followers of Christ. So it's really not a surprise where Christians land on this question. We've already answered that. Is Jesus the Christ? Christians would say definitively, yes, we think he is. But to the original hearers, this was the question. It was the question. Is Jesus that one, that anointed one? And perhaps for you, you might be here as one. That might be a question that you're personally wrestling with as well. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't answer that question directly in his words here. Um, he already has answered that plainly and clearly to the Samaritan woman at the well. And we saw that a couple weeks ago, back in John chapter 4. But here, he instead takes the opportunity to make a few assertions about who he is and what he's doing. So what does Jesus say about himself? There's three things in this passage. And if you have a Bible or a device where Jesus' words are in red, you'll notice in this, in this passage three separate sections of red text where Jesus teaches something about himself. So here's what he says. First in verses 28 and 29, he says, I come from God. I come from God. There are these different uh, interpretations among Jewish leaders about how much you could even know about the Anointed One, about the Christ. Um, some people, you see that in here, some people think you couldn't even know where he was going to come from. Other people say, no, you can't know where he's going to come from. He's supposed to come from Bethlehem, the city of David. Jesus 
skips over entirely the geographic location question. He skips over. He doesn't speak to it. And instead, he goes right to a more important answer. It doesn't matter where I came from geographically. It actually, what matters more is that I've come from God. I don't come of my own accord. God has sent me. That's not, that's not a new uh, teaching of Jesus. It's not a new assertion. We've already heard him say something almost exactly like that in John's Gospel already. And that's actually it's one of the teachings that makes him so polarizing. Two weeks ago, we saw that he was brought up on charges of blasphemy for saying things exactly like this. And even before he opens his mouth at the Feast of Booths, it says that the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. So the natural thing for anybody to do, a human being to do in this situation, would be to back off a little bit. They're trying to kill you for what you've said. Maybe you shouldn't say it exactly that way again. And he has, he has a softball pitch to do exactly that. He could just clarify the geographical question. He could just go, actually you can know where the Christ is going to come from. And it is from Bethlehem, David. That's actually the right answer for that. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he doubles down. I come from God. God has sent me. And actually, because you don't recognize me, it means that you don't know God either. He gets a little bit of a poke there at the end. He does do that. He gets a little bit of the antagonizing poke there at the end. So Jesus says, I've come from God. Second, verses 33 and 34, he says, I'm returning to God. I've come from God. I'm returning to God. Now, this is the first time Jesus says that in John's Gospel, but it's not the last. And he's already alluded to this a little bit, because he's, he's talked about his own resurrection and how he will raise up other people who believe in the last day. But here he takes it a step further. He says, I'm going to return to the one who sent me, and where I'm going, you can't come. You will seek me there, but you won't find me. And again, it's not about geography. The Jewish leaders, the the crowds are getting so hung up on geography. Where is he from? Where is he going? No prophet comes from Galilee. And Jesus says, uh, that's not not the issue that I want to deal with in this moment. These Jewish leaders think that as they try to arrest and kill Jesus, he's going to flee to another part of the world. He's going to spread his message among the non-Jewish people, the Greek people of the early first century Roman Empire. They're spread about. But again, Jesus is talking about a person and not a place when he says this. And just as he enjoyed perfect eternal fellowship with God the Father before he took on human flesh and came into the world, that's where he's returning. He's returning to perfect eternal relationship and fellowship with God when his earthly mission is done. So I come from God, I'm returning to God. And then third, in verse 37 and 38, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, will have rivers of living water flowing out of his heart. If you've been with us in the past few weeks, you've seen Jesus do this a few times now. He takes basic human needs, like water and bread, basic human longings, like thirst and hunger, and he uses them as signposts. These common, everyday necessities, he uses to point to himself as the one who satisfies our deepest needs and our deepest longings. Needs and longings like to be loved, to be forgiven and set free from the bondage of sin, to be welcomed, to live and to not die, to experience the salvation of God. 
And this picture of living water that he's already referenced once before has particular significance during the Feast of Booths. Because every single day during this week-long festival, a priest would lead a procession from the temple down to the Gihon Spring in Jerusalem and would fill a golden pitcher of water from the spring and then take it back up to the temple and pour it out on the altar. And as they did that, a a choir would chant the words of Isaiah chapter 12. This was part of the ceremony in the Feast of Booths. And Isaiah chapter 12 says this, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. They did that every day for the first six days of the Feast of Booths. On the last day, which is when Jesus speaks up, and it says he cries out these words. They did this procession seven times, from the Temple Mount down to the spring, to fill up the water back up to the Temple Mount. So this isn't Jesus just being poetic. Like, what metaphor can I use to describe myself? This is Jesus saying, the well of salvation is me. I am the well of salvation. The Holy One of Israel is in your midst. Like your choir is chanting and proclaiming in this procession. And I am the source of living water in a way that this ceremony will never accomplish for you. Do it it seven times a day if you want. You will still be thirsty. So come to me instead and drink, believe, and experience experience the living water that only I can offer. So, no, Jesus doesn't explicitly say here that he is the Christ. But as you're hopefully seeing, he's dropping just a little bit more than a subtle hint that he is the anointed one from God. Now, now why won't he answer that question directly? Like, why not just say, I'm the Christ, I am the anointed one? He doesn't answer it because the Jewish people in Jerusalem, like every single one of us, has to answer that question for themselves. We have to answer that question for ourselves. And that leads us to the second thing this morning. How do people respond? That's what Jesus That's what Jesus says he is and says about himself. How do people respond? Well, there's not one response. Like verse 43 says, there is a division among the people because of him. So he creates division. He's a polarizing figure and people do different things with him. Really, uh, the same thing is true today and, and for, for us to think anything else is to create expectations that will disappoint us as we try to follow Christ. If we try to follow Christ and think that that's automatically good news for everyone, they'll respond and welcome that. We set ourselves up with expectations that aren't realistic. Jesus has always been, from day one, a polarizing figure that creates this kind of division. The lines actually get drawn today in the very same places that they were drawn here among the original hearers. So three general responses that that people have to Jesus. Some people receive, some people seek, and some people reject. Some receive, some seek, and some reject. So some people receive Jesus' teachings with belief. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. This is the Christ. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises that God has been giving to his people for centuries. And some people actually take Jesus at his word. 
And they believe that he is the Christ. And that's enough for them. They hear Jesus say these things and they're like, I believe that really is the the prophet. That really is the Christ. And I know this won't be news to many of you in the room. But but also, God forbid that it ever becomes rote. Or that familiarity breeds contempt for us. Belief is the whole point of the Christian faith. Belief is the whole point of the Christian faith. The message of the gospel can sometimes get so veiled and so blurred. Because there are all kinds of great things to devote our lives to. And there are all kinds of... Uh, There's a character and an integrity and a consistency of life that we're called to pursue. But that is all out of a heart of belief. That's all a response to what Jesus has already done and a belief in what he's done. The gospel is Jesus offering himself. He's offering forgiveness and reconciliation with God through his own death and his resurrection. And the only thing that's required of you, the only thing that's required of anyone, is belief. So, if you're here this morning, and and that's been confusing for you in the past for whatever reason, may God just bring clarity to you in in this, in these words. Uh, You don't have to wait till your life is in order. You don't have to put your life together. You don't have to make yourself presentable. No one in the history of humanity has ever entered the kingdom of God by making himself or herself presentable enough. That's never been the way. It's always been through what Jesus has done and our trust and belief in that. And Jesus says, don't don't wait. Come and drink. Believe in me. Receive this inexhaustible well of salvation. So, whether you're here and you've never put any kind of faith in Christ, you've never received Him, or whether you've been a Christian for 80 years, really the response to Jesus is always the same. It's receive Him, believe in Him. In the midst of all these radical claims about His identity and purpose, receive Him and His word is true, and trust Him to be the source of of your salvation. Some don't receive, but they seek. They respond with, with further curiosity and questions about who Jesus is. And the seeking, as you, you might have noticed in here, it's not all the same. Um, some are skeptical seekers. They ask these questions, but really it seems like they're doubtful. They're looking for a way to discredit Jesus and discredit his claims. Others seem astonished in their seeking. Uh, the temple police, these officers that are sent by the Pharisees and chief priests to arrest Jesus, they're these kind of folks. They're the astonished seekers. They can't even bring themselves to to carry out their order because they're so intrigued by what they hear in Jesus. No one ever spoke like this man. Those words are even more true than they realize they're saying in that moment. No one ever spoke like this man. So it's not belief, but it definitely is an openness to that. Now let's talk about this part for a second. It's really important to differentiate between the seeking that happens prior to belief... And the kind of seeking that happens after you believe. So it would be disastrous for you to think that you have to have all of your questions and your doubts answered before you believe in Jesus. There isn't a single human being with any kind of intellectual integrity who would say that they came to faith only after all of their questions were satisfactorily answered. Nobody with intellectual integrity would say that. And actually... And fellow Christians, if I can let the cat out of the bag a little bit on this one, Christians still have questions and doubts. It's not just prior to, it's still, presently, in our lives today. 
So a whole Christian life is what the famous Archbishop Anselm of Canterbury calls faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding. You believe, but your seeking is not, is not done, ever. Through your relationship with God, through time with God in prayer, time in what He's revealed in His Word, through your own experiences, you're constantly gaining bits of understanding because of the belief that you already have. And that never ends. That's the pattern of our entire lives until we see Jesus face to face. Between now and then, we see dimly, the Apostle Paul says. But our belief leads us to seek more understanding. Excuse me. That's different than the kind of seeking that happens prior to belief. Um, before belief, before believing in Jesus at all, people come with curiosity and questions. Some are skeptical, some are intrigued and open. That's really a beautiful response to Jesus. To care enough about him that you're willing to entertain the truthfulness of his claims. That's a beautiful response. So if that's where you find yourself this morning, that is a wonderful place for you to be. It's just that in your seeking, and as we encourage other people that we become friends with and relate to 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 pursue this kind of seeking, we just can't lose sight of what Jesus says here. The, The curiosity and questions, they aren't the end goal. The end goal is belief. Now our culture, it can be a virtue to only ever have questions and never to arrive at an answer. It can be a virtue to never land concretely in anything. But though that might be a a virtue in our culture, it's not a virtue in the kingdom of God, at least when it comes to what your response to Jesus is. There's a scholar named Gary Birch, he puts it this way. He says, we are skilled at asking religious questions and feigning spiritual interest, but such inquiries are nothing more than disguised, sophisticated rebellion. Disguised, sophisticated rebellion. He goes on to say that many people are eager to engage in religious dialogue, but they are reluctant to meet God. Now what he's saying there is that there's a genuine kind of seeking, but there's also using seeking as an excuse to remain in charge of your life. There's a, there's a fake kind of seeking where we have questions or we come up with more questions, but it just allows us to delay having to make an actual decision of what we're doing with Jesus. One is genuinely seeking, one's not seeking at all. One is just disguised rebellion, as he says. So, as we get to interact with it, or if this is you, as you're seeking, I would commend to you what John Stott, he's a well-known, he passed away a couple years ago, a well-known British pastor and author says about what genuine seeking looks like. He offers a couple points about that. He says, seek seriously. So not lazily, or as if this were something that was unimportant, but seek with purpose. He says, seek humbly. Uh, As human beings, we're, we're limited. We're limited in our understanding and our capacity. If there is a God making claims like this, the only way we're going to know about it is if He's choosing to reveal it, reveal that to us. So, so a genuine seeking is a humble seeking, recognizing our limitedness. He says, seek honestly. Um, we all come to any kind of question or doubt or debate with preconceived ideas and prejudices and assumptions. We all come that way. The question is, are we willing to have those assumptions challenged and reordered? Because that's the difference between a genuine seeking and a fake seeking. 
And lastly, it says, seek obediently, which is by far the hardest one. John Stott says, to genuinely seek, we have to be prepared not only to revise our ideas, but to reform our lives. So the question for for someone who is seeking is not just who is Jesus, as we're considering in this series in the Gospel of John together, but when you find out who he is, what will you do with that? When you find out who he is, will you follow him? So some receive, some seek. Lastly, some reject. Some reject Jesus. They respond with opposition and sometimes outright violent hatred of Jesus. All throughout Jesus' life and ministry, the Pharisees and the chief priests, the religious leaders of the Jewish people, they're the ones who respond this way to Jesus most often. And on the one hand, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense that they would respond that way. Jesus was doing such a radically new thing. God taking on human flesh, dwelling amongst people. That's a radically new thing that Jesus was doing. So it makes sense that the religious leaders would struggle with that, that they would reject that. But at some point, it becomes not just struggle with something new, not just ignorance of something new that God's doing, it becomes a willing blindness. It becomes an entrenched opposition that refuses to acknowledge the validity of what Jesus says and what he does. And the irony in the way that the Pharisees and chief priests respond in the last verses of this passage, it shows just how entrenched they are in this. So they speak about no prophet arising from Galilee, yet some of their own prophets have arisen from Galilee. Jonah was from Galilee. Uh, Elijah probably was from Galilee. Nahum may have been from Galilee. These names might all be familiar. They're all, some of them are books of the Bible. Um, one of them, Elijah, is a famous prophet in the Old Testament. The Pharisees and chief priests, they ridicule the crowd for not knowing the law, for not knowing the scriptures. And they say that because of that, they're being accursed. But it's actually the other way around. The scriptures that, the, that these leaders know testify to Jesus. So the ones who have access to the scripture about Jesus are the ones rejecting and therefore accursed. All the while, those who don't have access to the scriptures are believing and being saved from that very curse. And they also speak of how other people are deceived. But it's them who have so entrenched themselves in opposition that they're deceived enough to miss the Christ, the Holy One of Israel, when He is right in front of them. So what what do we do with all this? What is your response to Jesus? Wherever you find yourself this morning, what is your response to Jesus? Are you in a place of receiving? Are you in a place of seeking? Are you in a place of rejecting. Who in this story are you most like in your response? And as you consider that, let me just throw throw this out there. The danger for those of us who already profess faith in Christ is that we're automatically going to assume that we're like the crowds who respond with simple childlike faith to the teachings of Jesus. It's actually quite possible that instead we've stopped for some reason that lifelong pursuit of faith-seeking understanding, and we've become entrenched in something merely because it's what we know, because it's tradition, because it's comfortable, because it feels like we've arrived, so we don't have to reorient and change and reorder our life anymore. We've already done that when we first came to Christ. Surely Jesus wouldn't cause me to do that again in a different way. It's possible to give the nod of belief and yet become entrenched in opposition to Jesus. And that's the dangerous part. 
And when I read accounts like this in the Gospels, I like to think that if I were walking around in the first century and among the people, I always like to picture myself as being part of the crowd. Like, following Jesus around, hanging on His every word, rejoicing that the kingdom of God is at hand and is coming. But if I get really honest with myself, I'm afraid that I'm actually a lot more like the Pharisees and the chief priests in the story. I know that that's in me. I can at least say that. I know that that's in me, left to myself. Rejecting Him as the Christ, because it's so new. Because it, it doesn't make automatic sense. And I think the longer that you've been a Christian, dangerously again, the stronger that pull can become to become hardened to rather than softened to the teachings of Jesus, that faith-seeking understanding. So what's my hope with that being my tendency? What's your hope if you're like me in that? Well, it's the same thing that was our hope before we ever believed. It's the same thing. See, the good news is that Jesus has come to save all these people, regardless of how they're currently responding. It's not just those who receive immediately that Jesus saves. It's those who seek, and it's even those who at present reject, even with violent hatred. So if you're childlike in your faith and you're ready to receive, Jesus has come to save you. If you're filled with curiosity and doubts, Jesus is not afraid. He's not put off by your curiosity and your questions. He might not answer them the way that you'd want him to. His answer might be, you can't know that right now. You can't know where I'm going. And until you're there, you won't know that's the right answer to that question, the full answer to that question. So you're going to have to believe anyway. Or if you're staunchly opposed in rejection of Jesus, Jesus has come for you as well. He's come to save you too. And Nicodemus' appearance in the Gospel of John is a testament to exactly all of that. He's a Pharisee. He's part of this group of religious leaders known for their opposition to Jesus. But watch him be transformed through the Gospel of John. He's presumptuous and he's proud when he first comes to Jesus. Jesus is my peer. And then here in John 7, he sounds like the only sane Pharisee. He says, don't we need to first hear this guy out and see what he does? He takes a ton of heat from even his own team in doing that. They start to ridicule him at the very end. Because he's open to a genuine seeking. Fast forward to John chapter 19. Nicodemus is one of the two men who takes Jesus down from the cross and buries him in the tomb. And the only conceivable reason that the Apostle John would include that progression is because at some point Jesus did believe in the resurrected Jesus. And according to church history, Nicodemus did just that. He's recognized as a saint in both the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic traditions. But do you see the progression? See the progression? He rejects, then he seeks, then he receives. And such were some of you. Such are some of us. Such are some of us, regardless of where you find yourself in your response in your your heart and mind this morning. So whatever that is, see in Jesus the perfect combination of urgency and patience. He can patiently wait and draw you over weeks and months and years. But his call will always be an urgent, come, come to me and drink. Jesus is a polarizing figure. He will not placate people and make his message easier to swallow, nor will he poke people, poke his opposition simply to antagonize them. Instead, he will continue to amplify what is so divisive about him. 
That he has come to rescue you from the slavery of your sin. As only the Christ, the anointed one, could do. So may we see him for who he is. May we receive him. May we come and drink from the wells of his salvation. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you say hard things. Because in saying that we need a Savior, you say that we are insufficient in and of ourselves. You say that we lack. And more than that, you say that we're corrupted and fractured beyond our own ability to fix. And you call us. You don't condemn us in that. You call us to come and drink. To come and experience the well of your salvation. And we pray, God, that wherever we are this morning, wherever each man, woman, and child is this morning, that we would see, Jesus, you have come to meet us right there. You have come to change us right there. For those who don't believe, God, may you open their eyes to see who you are. May people receive you. Not waiting until their life is put together, because none of us have done that. Not waiting until all our questions and doubts are answered. Because none of us have done that. But that they would see from who you are and see enough to believe. And then join all of us in this lifelong pursuit of faith-seeking understanding. Jesus, you have done a great work in the world and in the hearts of many in this room. Do that work more and more. And as we come to your table this morning, remind us of the cost that you paid to do that. But that the work itself has been finished. And we look to you this morning as we look to you always to meet us as we come. We pray this in your name. Amen.